Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. All right, welcome back to What Grinds My Gears. This week, we have got the topic of fundraising, grinding our gears. So in past episodes, we've touched on crypto asset classification, we've touched on governance models, and both of these topics are tied very closely to what we're talking about this week, which is how a project chooses to raise capital. So we're going to dissect the various models that have been used by teams to fund development, to distribute their coin or token, and to quote-unquote bootstrap their network. Which is a phrase that also grinds our gears. Hi, everyone. This is Meltem. Excited to be back with you this week. The reason we wanted to talk about this topic this week is with the upcoming discussions we've been seeing around the Zcash Founders Reward, which expires in 2020, and with Crypto Winter hitting token treasuries hard, I think the real question for most people is what funding models we can beg, borrow, or steal from the existing world of financing. But more importantly, the question is what models of financing are sustainable? This isn't just limited to crypto, by the way. Financing generally is seeing large-scale questioning with really innovative companies that are highly capital intensive, like SpaceX, for example, struggling to raise sufficient capital. There's also a fundamental problem around timing mismatch. A project may require millions, if not billions of dollars of investment before it becomes viable. And then the age-old question is one I'm intrigued by as an economist, I know many others are, which is the tragedy of the commons. So how do we finance infrastructure that is going to be used by a wide variety of applications, projects, individuals? And how do we prevent a model from becoming basically the never-ending Wikipedia fundraiser where a lot of people use a tool, but no one's really incentivized to contribute because they can get away by free riding. So with that being said, let's dive right in. And I think where we wanted to start, at least where I'm excited to start, is to talk about fundraising in the context of the quote-unquote old world, which makes me feel a bit like a grandma. But as many of you who've listened to this podcast know, corporate finance is one of my favorite topics. And I spent the last 10 years of my career now in the world of fundraising in various forms. So let's kick it off, Jill. Let's talk about how in the world you and I both came from, how we thought about fundraising and financing. Yeah, that's right. And so as you say, you know, this is hardly limited to crypto. Money makes the world go around no matter what kind of undertaking you're doing, whether that's a private entity, a corporation, uh, public infrastructure, nonprofit, or just some other project that you're trying to undertake. And so, you know, there, of course, are models that have been developed around each of these. The ones that come to mind for me, because it's the world that, you know, I was most closely uh, working in prior to getting into crypto, is that of debt and equity financing. So on balance sheet or off balance sheet funding um, to finance basically a corporate entity in most cases. And it, it basically breaks down into those two categories. You're either taking out a loan in the form of debt or you're issuing shares of the project 
uh, with the view that the project is going to appreciate in value, and that's the equity ownership stake. So that's the first thing that comes to mind for me in the quote-unquote old world of fundraising. So let's break down corporate funding a bit more. I recently took and passed my Series 7 and Series 24, so I got a refresher on this, which was... Congratulations. Uh, you know, um, it was interesting. So uh, when we talk about debt, um, I think there are two different ways to structure debt. Um, the debt can be limited recourse or recourse-driven debt, which is debt in which a creditor will have claim not only on a project itself, but will have claim on other parts of the company like goodwill, IP, et cetera, things that are generally intangible. Um, and then there's also non-recourse financing or project-specific financing, which I think in your world is probably what you were more familiar with, um, where the financing or the loan is covered only by the collateral related to that project. So in this instance, if Melton and Jill you know, formed a What Grinds My Gears SPV to build some new piece of technology, and we issued a non-recourse loan, the only thing that creditors would have right to is the IP or the assets produced under that SPV. And I think the reason this matters is in um, corporations, you know, typically corporate entity has a lot of assets on their balance sheet that are intangible, that are non-project related. And there's also a pecking order depending on the type of debt you hold, right? So if a company is unable to meet its debt obligations, there's a payout waterfall in which limited recourse holders or priority uh, debt holders are going to get paid out first. And therefore, this type of debt is typically viewed as a safer investment. Um, it can be issued at a lower rate. And so I think this concept of balancing risk based on the collateral that's underlying the debt or the equity offering is really important. That's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the first things that I learned when I was working in the bond market is that one way to think about debt is as a call option on whatever collateral is associated with the project, with the corporate, with the entity. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, the takeaway here around private or corporate funding is that there is generally an underlying of whatever it is that's been issued, whether that's in the form of an ownership stake of the project of the entity uh, in the form of equity, or whether that's in the form of a bond or the contract uh, that will outline, as you just said, what you actually have recourse on in the event that the debt does not get paid back. And but usually there's something there. Right. And let's not forget that you also have convertibles that go either way, right? So there are instances where debt holders can be converted into shareholders. And there are instances um, where shareholders could get first pick at debt. So I think um, the debt equity funding model is one that's well understood. For people who are curious, I'll link to a few articles I've written on this topic in the show notes. And I think it's generally something that we've widely discussed. The, but next so the, the reality is, is crypto doesn't fit neatly into either of those categories, right? So what are some other... What are some other areas that we could maybe draw points of comparison to? With so that's where I wanted to go to next um, is public infrastructure funding. So I've been spending a bit of time in the world of municipal bonds or munis, as they're called here in the U.S., and various forms of government funding, whether that's local, state, or federal, as we have here in the U.S., 
or in other parts of the world structured a bit differently. But the idea behind public infrastructure funding is a little different. Um, there are a lot of different types of municipal bonds. Again, highly recommend reading the Series 7 study guide because it covers the wide, wide range of both revenue bonds and general obligation bonds. Revenue bonds tend to be project-based, whereas general obligation bonds are collateralized by the taxing ability of the municipality or the government. But generally, when you're buying a public infrastructure funding instrument, um, really what you're betting on is the ability of a government to print money or to tax its citizens, which is kind of messed up if you think about it, but um, somehow that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the nuance I would add to this is if we're talking about fundraising just generally, then yeah, a municipality or a government government has basically two options. One is to issue debt, usually to institutional investors who will become the holders of that debt who are effectively you know, making the loan to that government entity. And then the other is just to tax the citizens. And this, I think, actually, in many ways comes closer to what we talk about and what we see in crypto than debt and equity. It's, we'll get into this more later, but it's, it's quite ironic to me that in crypto, where so many people have gotten into it because they're anti-government, anti-taxation, uh, you know, there are actually very similar structures that you see in many projects that, that look something like taxing. Another important thing to keep in mind here is um, the tax implications of participating in public infrastructure financing. So one unique thing about buying these types of instruments is they're typically um, tax exempt, particularly uh, federal tax exempt. So if you buy a municipal bond, for example, that yields 6% per year, that 6% you don't pay uh, federal taxes on. So if you're in a high income bracket or if you're a large investment firm, uh, municipal bonds can be a great way to add a non-tax income to your portfolio and to minimize your overall tax burden. So it's also interesting to think about different ways the state can leverage its ability to tax or not tax and how that can incentivize or disincentivize people from financing um, these types of projects. I think one other point I'll add on public infrastructure funding, and there's a company called Neighborly. Um, they have, they focus on public infrastructure financing um, through municipal bonds. And um, I went, I had the pleasure of going to a summit they hosted over the summer, and I did a talk with Jen McCaleb from the Stellar Foundation. We actually had a really interesting dialogue about some of the analogs between investing in public infrastructure and building some of these crypto networks that are intended to provide infrastructure for people to build on. So I think in the later part of our conversation, Jill, I really want to come back to this topic of public infrastructure funding, because I think it's an interesting but highly imperfect model. And the world of municipal bonds in particular is one that is really, really poorly coordinated. Um, markets are difficult to untangle. Price discovery is challenging. There's not a lot of liquidity. So I think in many ways, um, blockchain technology, quote unquote, or the idea of digitizing certain types of contracts is actually really interesting when you think about, you know, historically it's been physical infrastructure. So things like new sewer systems, new schools, new hospitals, maybe it's a new toll road. Um, but in this case, we're starting to see municipal infrastructure also become digital. So maybe a neighborhood needs broadband and actually Neighborly did a really cool project where they did a bond for uh, broadband offering in a municipality. So I think as we see the idea of 
benefits in particular uh, parts of the country becoming more digital as well as physical um, in terms of infrastructure, there are some really interesting ways to think about how you build not only physical compute networks, but also these protocols through some type of public funding model. Meltem, you sound like you're an advocate for enterprise blockchain right now. I'm shocked. Oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> That's my one curse word for today. Um, the third type of financing is my least favorite. And I think it's the one that's fraught with the most challenges from an incentive perspective. And this is nonprofit funding. So let's talk about nonprofit. Yeah. So again, we've run through here, private corporate funding, public infrastructure, and then as you say, the third category uh, that that you have available to you if you're trying to fundraise to, to get a project off the ground is to go with the nonprofit route. Um, which is a very difficult route in most jurisdictions, certainly in the U.S. You have to file with the government. You have to go through all of these uh, hoops and hurdles in order to be deemed a nonprofit. And there again, you know, there are some tax benefits that come along with that. But it also puts a lot of scrutiny on your operations, on uh, your ability to fundraise, basically, on what you can then do with that money and how you can dole it out. Um, and it, you know, it, it also raises some really interesting questions of just incentive alignment of who are yeah. your donors if if you're running a nonprofit and why why do they care to see you succeed in the world? Maybe it's just a matter of philanthropy, philanthropy, excuse me, but maybe there are some other, uh, you know, more intricate. Uh, relationships at play there as as we see with sort of lobbying firms and and other kind of more politically charged or maybe, organizations. Or maybe something like the Trump Foundation, <laughs> which was forced to disband. Um, look, when we talk about nonprofit funding, this is an area that um, I've been interested in, particularly the intersection of public-private financing. Um, when I was at ExxonMobil, I had the joy of working on a development deal. So it was a oil field development deal um, done in conjunction with the World Bank. And it was a small financing, relatively speaking. These financings tend to be you know, 20 to $40 billion to develop a major oil field. This one was for about $200 million. So little baby funding project. And I think um, the World Bank committed half the resources and then a consortium of oil companies, so private funding, contributed the other half. And uh, the consortium spent more on legal fees than the entire cost of the financing. And so (laughs) to your point, a lot of um, nonprofit funding, grants and stipends that are done in partnership with funding organizations or entities rely on this continual cycle of applying for grants, getting grants. Um, I have a lot of friends who work in public health, for example, or who do public health research, and they're constantly trapped in this struggle. And so I think this creates a lot of different challenges. I think there are questions around incentive alignment. There's a lot of reporting that needs to happen when you have financing from a not-for-profit entity or foundation. Um, But one interesting model we've seen that's sort of nonprofit-based 
um, is a bug bounty driven development model, particularly in open source software, where grants will come from an entity. Um, we've seen certainly, you know, aid funding has been interesting to track, where aid funding is probably the most useless type of nonprofit or NGO funding we've seen. So, Jill, I think nonprofit funding is an area I just find so unattractive. It's really, to me, um, the area of financing that makes the least sense because the incentives aren't there. And so this particular type of funding to me is the most fraught with principal agent issues and with incentive problems. I I think that it's really hard to get right. I don't think that it's impossible to get right though. And I, I have some direct experience with doing nonprofit fundraising myself. I think that sometimes when it is a public good that you're trying to fundraise for, as is often the case or often intends to be the case with crypto projects, but it's not something that a government or a municipality is taking on to fundraise for themselves uh, or to finance themselves, rather, I think that nonprofit can actually be a good route. But we can get into that later. Before we wrap up kind of our, our discussion of old world financing, we would be remiss if we didn't also touch upon crowdsourcing, because that I think is one of the areas that of the models we've discussed has the most parallels to cryptocurrency. So here I'm talking about things like Indiegogo, Kickstarter, Patreon. And I know that this is an area where most of those companies I've just mentioned have been in headlines of at least exploring blockchains and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And I think that it could actually be a pretty interesting fit for that. What do you think? I think so as well. I think one of the big challenges with crowdsourcing or crowdfunding, um, particularly for projects that rely on voluntary donations um, or pre-orders or some type of crowdsourcing, for example, peer-to-peer development projects um, where there is no compensation or maybe there's only compensation for bug bounties or maybe there are consulting projects that the parent entity does to get capital to further develop the open source side Or maybe there's a freemium model, which I think is one we don't talk about enough, where a base sort of functionality is free, but then to get additional features, you pay, and that finances the overall development of the the project or the network or whatever it may be. I think the big challenge with crowdfunding is um, figuring out who is going to contribute and who's actually deriving the most benefit. And really when we get down to it, um, the issue of financing is an issue of resource allocation, risk and joint production, right? That's right. Yeah. So let's, let's take all of this and apply it now to what we're actually talking about, which is crypto. So again, the reason why we wanted to talk about this all this week is the Zcash, the issue of the Zcash founders reward has been uh, making some waves lately, given that it expires in 2020. Um, what's going to happen to the Zcash company beyond that? What will be their source of financing and, and funding and po- possibly even revenue? Uh, and then the other area of, of discussion that has been making waves around this is actually that of Grin. Uh, so Grin launched a few weeks ago. Uh, it had a quote-unquote fair launch, i.e. no pre-sale, no pre-mine, uh, none of this nonsense that we often hear about with cryptocurrency. And but this no is founder also, reward. no founder's reward. This has also caused some problems, though, as one of the main developers of it Initially, he's managed to fundraise for it now, but initially was struggling to close funding to be able to continue working on the project full time. So 
we have all of these different ways of of raising financing, uh, whether it's debt and equity, bonds, taxes, grants, stipends, crowdfunding, et cetera. How does all of this relate to crypto? Meltem, do you wanna do you wanna start to dive in here? Sure. And um I think one of the core concepts we really keep dancing around, which to me has been sort of my fascination over the last 12 months or so, has really been um, how to align people who do work and create and people who use and benefit, right? So how do you create a system where people who contribute can participate in the value of what they're creating and people who use it or leverage it in other ways that create value contribute or pay in some sort of way to those people who are creating that value. So to me, what's really interesting here, and this is actually a topic that has been explored at length throughout economic history. It started with the tragedy of the commons, which, you know, is described by economists as early as Adam Smith in the 1700s when he wrote about markets and, you know, observing cows grazing in a common green in a village. There's always one asshole who shows up with all his cows and they eat all the grass and there's none left for anyone else, right? This is kind of the tragedy of the commons is kind of like buffets where there's a really good food, like maybe shrimp. There's always that one person who stands right there and eats it all before anyone can have any. So look, it's a phenomenon that's been commonly documented. And crypto isn't the first time that we've had free open source software or what's called a CDPP or commons-based peer production, which is kind of the internet equivalent of open source kind of peer-to-peer production. And there have always been these fundamental problems. Look at the challenges Wikipedia has with funding. Look at the challenges that, um, you know, uh, Linux has had with funding. Red Hat has been a critical component of that. So again, these problems of how to capitalize public benefit or infrastructure-driven projects, regardless of whether it's physical or digital or more esoteric in nature, um, has always been a challenge. But what's really different here is, for the first time, we have the invention of network-native money. And so the model we've kind of taken is, hey, we can create this network-native money and we can try to allocate it in different ways to finance the development of this project. Now, what we've observed in reality as all of these different experiments around how to build sustainable funding structure have emerged is that, in fact, all of these different models are fraught with challenges because the incentives are different. There are different types of stakeholders. And really, I think with crypto, one of the big problems is who's actually using the stuff? Yeah. So it comes back to this question of principal agent model. And I, I think here it would be worth delving into the different models that do exist within cryptocurrency. So I I tend to break it down into the initial fundraise and then the ongoing funding that should be financing the project, the team of developers, whoever it is who's kind of critical to advancing the project forward, not just getting it off the ground. So on the initial funding side, there's the option to have none to do effectively what's come to be called a fair launch. Uh, so that's no pre-sale, no pre-mine, no ICO. The other options are the ones that I just mentioned. So we've run through a whole lot here around the different funding models that have existed in the past. Let's dive in now to the models that exist, have existed over the last five, 10 years, 
for cryptocurrency, uh, which borrow, beg, and steal, as you put it, from debt and equity financing, public infra, nonprofit, and crowdsourcing. So the first, the first fundries that happened around cryptocurrency actually didn't really happen at all because it was for Bitcoin, right? And so Bitcoin, when it got started, it didn't take money from early investors or early adopters. It was just a couple of nodes hooked up to each other starting to mine, right? So that's that's kind of the, the first stop on this crypto financing journey. Um, and that's come to be called a fair launch. There are other projects who have followed in the footsteps. I would say that the key components of doing this kind of fair launch are one, to have a pseudonymous founder, uh, two, to not take any advanced funding, and three, to have the funding that comes in just be basically market-driven in the secondary market as people start to buy and sell and trade the token. So again, Bitcoin was the first of these. I would put Monero kind of in that same category. I would certainly put Grin in that same category. So question here, though. I think with Bitcoin, certainly um, the incentive and I want to go back to incentive because I think it drives a lot of these financing choices. I think with the initial launch of Bitcoin, the incentive was really around experimentation. And a lot of people who were participating in Bitcoin early on were not expecting to make a profit. I think with subsequent projects that have deployed the quote unquote fair launch mechanism, most people who participate have done it with the expectation that the assets they'll produce by participating, i.e. running a node in the network, will increase dramatically in value. And so I think this financialization of these fair launches, again, this is what we observed in Grin, very little funding went to the team which tried to uh, raise donation funding and $100 million or more was spent on mining SPVs by speculative investors, i.e. VCs and crypto funds who are interested in earning a return. So here I think it's really worth uh, delineating between the initial funding mechanism and then the source of ongoing mm. funding. And I think that that's really relevant when it comes to discussing Grin, because sure, maybe it was all well and good to sort of get the project off the ground with no initial funding. Makes sense then to have all of the funding be going towards these SPVs that are running mining operations around Grin, etc. But where they're starting to run into issues is in the question of ongoing funding. And we've seen this as one of their core developers was struggling to raise funds to be able to continue to work full time on the project. If that's not a tragedy of the commons, I'm not sure what is. It, and I, that's the challenge to me is with some of these models, you may have the intent of doing a fair launch and the incentive may be there. But at the end of the day, if people are spending time, energy and resources on building these networks, people have living expenses <laughs> that are unfortunately still paid in, in US dollars. And so to me, the question is, if these people are doing valuable work and their contributions are needed, then how do you create a sustainable and effective model, not just that initial outset, but also sort of ongoing. But let's continue through these models. So there's the quote unquote fair launch or no pre-mine, pre-sale model where basically everyone's a hobbyist who is contributing out of goodwill and their desire to see the project launch. Then there is 
the pre-sale. Um, and pre-sale to me kind of goes hand in hand in a lot of cases with a pre-9 or pre uh, an ICO where people say, hey, we're going to be creating these tokens. We're taking a certain allocation as the founding team. Maybe like in the Zcash model, they sell some of that allocation to investors. Um, maybe like other projects we've seen, they pre-mine a portion of, or in some cases, even all of the tokens. Um, and they give those out over time. Some portion goes to investors. They can be time-locked. They can be redeemed all of the launch of the network. There are a lot of different models here, but really the goal of all of these models, in my view, is to raise capital early on so that people can be paid salaries and so that the costs of creating the project, um, having people work on it, and most importantly, in a lot of cases, marketing it, uh, that there's money to pay for that. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that the pre-sale was taken sort of ad absurdum in the throes of the 2017 bull market, when we were starting to see not just private pre-sales, but private pre-pre-sales, pre-pre-pre-sales, where sort of the first people in would get a mega discount. And then, you know, it, it felt very Ponzi scheme-esque. So I think it's worth just calling that out as well as a dynamic around these things. So we've got the fair launch, we've got the pre-sale, uh, we've got the pre-mine, which, as you said, often goes hand-in-hand hand with the pre-sale, although a pre-mine may often as well just be for the founding team, uh, some allocation of tokens. Uh, that, that, again, sort of goes along with what we mentioned around the Zcash company, although there's some nuance there. Uh, and then there is the ICO, the initial coin offering. And I would differentiate the ICO from the presale insofar as an ICO may conduct a presale, but the ICO has the kind of connotation to me of being open to the general public, which we've since discovered is questionably legal at best in most jurisdictions, including the United States. What I think is really funny is these initial funding models, which were really intended, I think, or in many cases positioned as ways to fund technical development in many projects I know, and I'm not going to mention names here, the majority of that initial funding that was raised went to pay number one, lawyers, number two, accountants and financial structuring people. Um, and then number three, marketers. Um, what I think is so funny, I was just in Davos, which is quickly becoming one of my least favorite places on the planet. And what was so funny is all of these ICOs had um, these parties and these events, or maybe they had these uh, buildings on the promenade that they leased and all these people were like, oh, this is so cool. This ICO I invested in is having this amazing thing. I'm like, do you literally realize they're spending your money? Yeah. You know what really grinds my gears is ICO projects shilling themselves at Davos, especially when they weren't even invited to the main conference. They're just showing up there to, uh, to shill to the rich people present. God. It was actually insane. I will say 2018 was a lot worse, um, but this year there was still... Some of that, I just, look, I just think it's interesting because this money, I, for myself, there were a few projects I invested in um, where the money was supposed to go towards, you know, paying for talent that was going to put their fingers on a keyboard and sit in an office and 
write code and ship a network. And in reality, you know, it's two years later, the network hasn't really gotten shipped. When I look at the founders who are my Instagram friends or Twitter friends, um, they're flying all over the world speaking at conferences or they're popping bottles of champagne um, or they're flying business class. And I'm like, okay, so you raise all this money and instead of spending it on the things you're supposed to spend it on, you're spending it on living a nice lifestyle. This is where I come back to the crowdsourcing analogy because if if you were an equity, which I mean, you when you invest in these projects in general, you've gotten a SAFT, so you are an equity shareholder. But if this were a public company and you were an equity shareholder in the sort of conventional old world of finance, that would fly a lot less. Don't get me wrong, that still happens. There's still corporate corruption. There's still golden parachutes. Um, but you know, there's just a lot more respect, I think, for the principal agent dynamics and for the fiduciary responsibility to see the company through to be successful. This is a problem that we see in venture funding much more broadly as well outside of just the ICO model. Absolutely. You see it at places like South by Southwest. There's a great article that highlights um, all of the desperate things startups spent money on to get people's attention at uh, South by Southwest. And you also see it at Money 2020, which I know is a conference you've been to. I went to it for a few years. It's this big conference around fintech and finance and <laughs> topics. It's a circus. It's a circus is what it but is. But people spend insane amounts of money. But this is again where... So Money 2020 actually invited me to speak on a panel. And then they wrote back to me a week later and said, great, your ticket costs $4,000. And I wrote back and I was like, wait, what? you invited me to the conference to speak. And they were like, yeah, we make money based on people paying to speak at the conference. I was like, I don't even have anything to shill. I'm a single person consultancy. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sorry, we're getting we're getting very off topic here, but I do think that it's very worth calling out all of the nonsense of this sort of tech crunch culture that Silicon Valley and venture funding perpetuates and propagates. And I do think that the ICO craze of a couple of years ago was sort of the the peak of that and and uh, just kind of encapsulates the paradigm. You say a couple years ago, it was literally six months ago. <laughs> Not that long ago. But look, I mean, it's still happening. It's still happening. So I, I think that about initial funding, here's why I think this is relevant. The reason that people are able to do this, the reason that it's not talked about, the reason that it's not addressed or nipped in the bud is because there aren't any stakeholders who are sufficiently motivated or sufficiently invested to do anything about it. And this is one of the challenges. There's no transparency. I've never seen a budget. I have no idea what people are spending money on. There is very little transparency, which is very atypical. So if we go back to, for example, uh, public infrastructure funding, even private corporate funding, nonprofit funding, crowdsourcing, all of these things are processes that are well-defined and well 
governed not to bring up the topic of last week's podcast. No, it's totally, it's inextricably linked governance and this issue of financing and fundraising. And so the challenge I see, so you have this initial funding that you raise somehow, you do it in a manner that's poorly understood, poorly governed. The stakeholders themselves, I think in a lot of cases, don't even understand the role they're supposed to play. And so what you get as a result is a lot of this initial funding, which is what the majority of the focus is, is squandered on things that are functionally useless. And then your network launches. And how do you finance it on an ongoing basis? And this is really the crux of the issue we're struggling with in this community is in a bear market, in a market where, you know, you raised Bitcoin 20,000, Ether 800, all of a sudden you have 80% less capital than you thought you did. You didn't talk to Meltem and diversify your treasury. What are you going to do? Um, sorry, that that was self-serving. But and there are a lot of people banging that drum. But what are you going to do? And this is where the question becomes, what are the sustainable models that we can use to continue to fund these projects? So let's talk about that topic because I think we've seen some really interesting examples. I know you have some personal gears to grind here. I know I do as well. So let's do it. Let's grind the gears. So, yeah, I, I think that it's it's really hard to know where to begin for me, to be honest, on this topic, because there have been so many haphazard attempts to find ongoing sources of funding. But the reality is, is almost all of them have come down to one thing, which is token price appreciation. They're all making a bet on themselves that, oh, the price of Bitcoin is going to go up. The price of Grin is going to go up. The price of Tezos is going to go up. The price of Ripple, you name it, is going to go higher. And therefore, the company will be sustainable. There is no viable revenue model that I have seen come out of the cryptocurrency protocol space yet. So we have all of these different examples of, you know, oh, well, Bitcoin and, you know, Blockstream and Chaincone Labs are, you know, perpetuating Bitcoin, working on it, building on it. Uh, you have the donation-based model, which is what Monero uses, what Grin seems to be using based on basically the goodwill of the community to continue fund funding it. You have foundations. So you have these massive treasuries that, you know, Ethereum, Tezos, Bancor, you name it, raised, and they're going to give out grants to devs and, and to the community. Uh, you have the company model, which is what EOS has used. Every every penny that's gone into EOS, every, uh, I don't even know what the decimal point of an Ethereum token is called, but every drop of funding that's gone into EOS has gone into block one. You have Ripple. Um, Ripple is a centralized company. But again, all of these come down to one core thing, which is that they're based on the appreciation of the token, which is basically them making a levered bet on themselves. They're just doubling down on the amount of exposure that they have to themselves and to the market. And this is the fundamental issue, in my view, until we solve the issue of how things can be sustainably funded in perpetuity we are not going to see meaningful progress be made. This is also the issue, by the way, in the world of venture capital. This is the issue with companies who don't raise adequate capital or burn through their capital too quickly. If you're a founder and you're spending 90% of your time fundraising or pumping your shitcoin, 
how are you going to develop anything? It's a complete waste of time. So look, there are two sides to this story. One is, I think the current model that's been used, and this is a really big challenge actually right now, I think the current model that's been used is completely inadequate. It's completely inappropriate for what most of these projects are trying to do. And what's interesting is you now see projects that raise token funding through an ICO or pre-sale or pre-mine um, who now are sitting on capital that's gone from maybe 10 million or 100 million to 20 million or even 1 million in some cases. They're now trying to figure out, can we equity raise? Is there some type of debt we can create? Um, do we have any assets that are saleable? Can we create a revenue-driven business model? And this is what's so sad to me is really the most important factor that determines whether or not a protocol or network will succeed right now is how good they were at preserving financial capital. Look at Tron. Tron is not technically the most sophisticated, and there are many other things I could say, but I will censor myself. <laughs> Tron is a project that I don't understand why it exists. I don't understand the technology behind it. And I think most people who look at it don't. But what Tron did really well is they managed their treasury really well. And so they have a shit ton of money. Which is why they can and go they out and acquire BitTorrent. Exactly. And have, uh, you know, Black Mamba speak at their yep. conference. And, you know, I think that another point that I want to make here to circle back to our little aside about... Davos and kind of the tech crunch culture and money 2020 and and shilling your token. This is why there is this focus on marketing. This is part at least of why there is this massive focus on marketing. Because if your fundraising, if your financing of the project is dependent on token price appreciation, then of course you're going to put your eggs in that basket of shilling and pumping your token because you're dependent on that. And in most cases, you don't actually have a product that's generating a revenue stream. You haven't made something people want that's making you money in a sustainable fashion. So all you have is your ability to go out and buy posters on, you know, at, at conferences like Money 2020 and then host after parties with Snoop Dogg in order to get people excited about your token. So they'll go out and buy it. So you'll have more money in the bank to keep putting it back into the marketing. It's it, it's a really unhealthy ecosystem that we exist in. And I think, you know, to, to turn it around a bit and try and make this a little bit more positively framed, I am encouraged that we're starting to see some experimentation or exploration of how teams can make a product and how teams can have a revenue stream. And I think that, you know, to go back to what you were saying about issues of transparency and then also issues of sustainability, look, the Zcash company is in a little bit of a corner right now. They're very open about this, that their, their founder's reward is going to run out in, in 2020. But I have to give them a lot of credit for having foresight about it, for being very open with their finances in the meantime of what, what that money is going towards today, and then also for thinking very creatively about ways in which they can generate revenue or have an ongoing financing mechanism that, that will be sustainable beyond just token price appreciation. 
Here's the other thing that I think is interesting. You have to create a ongoing funding or financing model that removes the volatility of token prices from the funding model. And this is actually, I think, one of the reasons that the Zcash Founders Award gets so much criticism is when Zcash was worth you know, $250 per token, the Founders Award was a lot of money. And in the current market where the price is significantly less than $250, it's not that much money. And so there is this ongoing challenge of how to create a sustainable, dependable cash flow model. Um, this is where I think the Hashgraph fundraising model was an interesting one, albeit one I absolutely do not understand. So Hashgraph is a not a blockchain. It's a DAG or um, a directed acyclic graph, which is a different way of reaching consensus. Um, but they raised capital um, for a patented piece of software. So they said, hey, you know what? We're going to be a company. We're going to use some of our funding to give it to a foundation, but our software is patented. So that's one model. Um, I think the EOS model is an intriguing one. I don't really understand how someone who contributed $4 billion to the EOS crowd, ray, uh, crowd sale feels about block one basically getting that $4 billion as revenue, booking it as revenue, and then creating a bunch of venture funds where the GPs and the LPs are the investors and owners of the company. But that, you know, is certainly one model. The Ripple model, I don't need to delve into. Um, Ryan Selkis and the team at Masari, which I'm an investor in, I think have analyzed that every which way. But this idea that Ripple was quote unquote gifted XRP is just... It's intriguing. Um, but, but there is this question of how do you enable common infrastructure, publicly available common infrastructure, much like sidewalks, roads, Wi-Fi connectivity, these things that people need to use to connect um, different parts of these networks. How do you finance them in a way that's sustainable? And at the end of the day, if a private group of investors own something, if you're dependent on the continued generosity of a community whose perception of wealth is tied to prices on coin market cap, you're kind of screwed. And so this is where I wish, um, and maybe this will actually happen in 2019. I've been talking to a few folks and I think um, I'm going to do some more writing about different potential funding models, but I would just love to see some more creative experimentation of taking existing funding models that we understand that have existing governance structures and trying to adapt them to fit the world of crypto rather than saying, hey, this is a brand new world and therefore all of us are going to create Swiss foundations or repeat ad nauseum, copy paste this one model that clearly does not work. That's right. And it, it, it doesn't need to be rocket science, right? I mean, as we mentioned towards the beginning of this episode, there are existing structures to fund free open source software projects. Maybe that's maybe that's the appropriate one for you. Maybe you're not going to become the multi-billionaire crypto startup founder you thought you'd be, but maybe you'll actually ship something. Imagine that. But since when, what, and, and here again, I think it's really all about incentives, right? So say what you will about Blockstream. I actually have always thought that Blockstream is a fascinating company that does 
a lot of good for Bitcoin. And coincidentally, in direct response to sort of these accusations um, that Blockstream faced around dominating Bitcoin development, um, MIT, which is an academic institution, created a uh, program that's funded 100% by donors called the Digital Currency Initiative or the MIT DCI. It's run by Neha Narula, who I think does a really phenomenal job, but they employ some Bitcoin core contributors as, as well. And so, look, I think people are really trying, um, but at the end of the day, people who work on projects that are consumed by others for free need to get paid. Um, I read this insane statistic, Jill, that Wikipedia is maintained by this group, this core group of four or 500 people that basically spend every living, breathing moment editing Wikipedia entries. And I think about, I've probably used Wikipedia at least 50 times today. I got my education on Wikipedia. I'm not even exaggerating. I think every paper, every exam that I prepared for at Harvard I used Wikipedia in some capacity. I love that. But do you at least like cite the sources that are cited in the Wikipedia article? Oh, yeah. Then I have to go back and, you know, freaking find it in some tome delving deep into the shelves of the library. I don't actually. I'm I'm sad. Wikipedia wasn't really as built out when I was in college. So I actually, um, we had a library of Congress on campus at Rice. So I had to spend, I spent nights in the stacks, Jill, when I was writing my age, Nelson. I know. Oh, I'm crypto grandma. Why? I also own a record player for... Um, That's know. just because you're a Brooklyn hipster now. That's not because you're old. But okay, <laughs> back to the point here, though. I, You know, the Wikipedia example, I think, is is a really valid one here. You know, one of, one of my favorite sort of hot takes on the whole ICO craze was, look at Wikipedia. They didn't need Wikicoin. Well... You will be disappointed to know that I think Wikipedia is working on their own coin. They have been for some time. But at the end of the day, the reason I bring up Wikipedia as an example is I constantly give to Wikipedia. They have their banner at the top of the site. Most people X out of it. I give to Wikipedia constantly 20 bucks here, 20 bucks there. At the end of the year, you know, maybe adds up to 100 or a couple hundred, but it comes nowhere close. I think about like when I was a kid, I was really excited because my dad bought me a full Encyclopedia Britannica set. And again, I'm showing my age, but, you know, seven-year-old Meltzer had a penchant for reading. And I think it costs, you know, probably a thousand guilders or a thousand dollars for, you know, 40 leather-bound volumes. Um, And people made money off of that. So there was money in that business model. This has been one of the big challenges is as things get digitized, as things become more accessible, more readily available, how do we incentivize the people who contribute to be compensated. Um, And this could be in the form of monetary compensation. I think for a lot of people who contribute to projects, it's some form of like deep intellectual satisfaction. Maybe it's for recognition. Maybe it's for fame. I I can't begin to sort of, you know, hypothesize as to what might motivate people. But at the end of the day, none of these models are really that sustainable. And look at crowdfunding. Crowdfunding has really, really suffered in many ways. Patreon has a ton of its own issues. And so I'm just really curious, like, where are the people who want to work on cool financing? Is that just not sexy? I think that the reality is, is most people don't care how they get the money. And it also has a direct impact just on what what the project ultimately becomes. Is it just a marketing operation or does it have a product that is generating real value for the world and, and for its users? 
And what I always come back to is there's value creation and value capture. And they're two very different things. This is where I'll bring up one last concept. So we've talked about initial funding. We've talked about ongoing sustainable funding models. Um, But the one piece we haven't talked about is terminal value, right? So we haven't seen many projects reach the end of their life yet. Although arguably, I'm sad because someone said DentaCoin is dead. Is that true? Do you know that? What? Rest in peace. I, I had no idea. Well, again, I don't I don't know. Dentacoin to me will never die. It will always be a part of my soul. I'm a penny um, bid for Dentacoin. <laughs> I'm a penny bid. Hit me up. Um but look, in um, in financing, right? So when you're doing discounted cash flow, typically you're trying to arrive at a terminal value, right? And terminal value, terminal means end of life. So is the value at the end of the life of a project. So if we're looking at an oil well, for example, after all of the oil, ha- all of the oil cash flows have been captured um, and the remaining saleable assets have been sold, what's the value of the sum of all of that? And so to me, what's really interesting as well, and one thing we really haven't explored is what happens when a project dies. So say, for example, they're this year alone, you know, there are probably going to be 100 to 200, maybe even more projects who just run out of capital. And so what happens to the intellectual property? What happens to the open source software? What happens to the in, you know, knowledge that's been created? Do those things have any value? Is there any residual value? I have to believe yes, but I don't know. And and this brings us back full circle to the beginning of our conversation around corporate funding and debt and equity, where there is always residual value of some form or another. It's very rare that the debt or the equity of a company, well, equity less so, but that the debt of a company actually goes to zero because there's generally some underlying, even if it's just the IP or some property plan equipment, et cetera. And it's, it is very interesting to think about where we wind up with tokens. I, I have the thesis that tokens will never die, that they'll just become these sort of zombie tokens. I'm just looking up Dentacoin, by the way. It looks like it's still around, but it's trading at 0.00007. So I take back my penny bid. But what what does that even mean? Like, what what is the terminal value of this? Is there any... Uh, you know, Dentacoin aside, what is the terminal value of of tokens and token projects that are still looking for product market fit? But hold on, you okay? So one thing to think about: it's not a great analogy, but I think it's a starting point. Look at BitTorrent, right? BitTorrent open source software has never really been monetized. Um, BitTorrent's software, I don't even know. So um, Tron, right? The crypto protocol token situation, they acquired BitTorrent. Now, I don't know how you acquire open source software that anyone can download as a client and and run. Um, Maybe they just bought the BitTorrent brand. I I have no idea. But um, Tron bought a piece of open source software and coincidentally, they used it to raise more money um, through another shitcoin they issued called BTT. so circular, it's insane. But there is some sort of residual value clearly to an open source project uh, because this entity that contained brand, some form of IP um, was just sold for 
a multiple of hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so there's an example of terminal value, right? I, I think though, I, I want to jump in here and point out Simon Morris, who was involved in helping to run BitTorrent, uh, in helping to uh, develop BitTorrent, the technology. He wrote this great four-part blog series titled Why BitTorrent Mattered and Its Lessons for Crypto that is so worth reading on this topic of terminal value because he discusses basically where BitTorrent went wrong or just didn't have options that existed for monetizing and creating more value and then the lessons that he believes can be applied to cryptocurrency in the sense that they're both decentralized open source technologies. Um, so that's really worth reading. I, I also wanted to mention, I've written about this in the past. I know you have as well. Uh, I wrote a piece called Short Convexity uh, almost a year ago, about nine months ago, on this very topic of token treasuries and the mistake of having to rely on the price appreciation of a token. I would say it's prescient, but I don't think it was that hard to see last February, March, that, that things might go pear-shaped. Well, you know what's funny? I think your uh, short convexity post was actually a direct reaction to my drowning in tokens post, which you had inspired me to write because I kept bitching to you about tokens and ICOs and you were like, Meltem, I'm no longer going to take your phone calls. Write it down, please. <laughs> do you remember that? I do remember. I was like, I do. wine at 4 a.m. Um, on a Friday night, just like, furiously typing and my partner came into the living room and he was like you're actually a psychopath please go to bed I've never met a person who gets intoxicated on a Friday night and decides to sit at their laptop and type for eight hours straight that's right I'm just looking back we published them back to back that's hilarious so if you want more on this there's plenty to read by myself and Meltem and by many others out there um, but I think it's I think it's worthwhile because I think that this is one of the most important questions and topics facing crypto because it has to do with everything. It has to do with the asset classification. It has to do with governance models. It has to do with product market fit, all of it. Well, the most important word to me is sustainability. To me, resilient, worthwhile infrastructure can't last one year two years, five years. It can't be dependent on the continued generosity of a benevolent dictator or a benevolent benefactor. It needs to have a sustainable governance model, which we talked about last week for those of you who didn't catch that episode. And then it really needs to have a sustainable financing model. And what I, again, this is my rallying cry. I'm going to be working on this with a few crypto projects what are sustainable funding models and how can we create more experimentation around these models? Because clearly what we're doing right now is not working. And um, clearly what's been done historically, you know, we can rehash and revisit the issues around the monetization of BitTorrent and other forms of open source software, but there really needs to be, like we have this technology, we have our rational minds, we have the ability to gather data. I do not understand how we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Either literally nobody gives a shit and they just want to raise as much money as possible as quickly as possible, or... Yeah, I don't know. It's like, I just do not understand it. So I will be more active in this space because I think there's so much opportunity here. It would be a real shame to see crypto development stalled um, for years and years because nobody could get their shit together enough to figure out how to fund these things in a way that isn't completely scammy or that isn't completely illogical. 
That's right. And so, yeah, I would say stay tuned for more from us on all of this. Uh, you know, be thoughtful as you're looking around at projects out there, uh, be it Zcash, Beam on the Founders Reward front, uh, all of the ICOs that you may or may not have invested in or gotten scammed by, um, be it companies that have actually issued equity, or be it just these more kind of actually decentralized donation-based models. Just be thoughtful about all of this as, as you're assessing these projects. And also bear in mind that, as we like to say, there is nothing new under the sun. There are aspects of all of this that are borrowing from corporate financing, from public infra, from nonprofit world, and from crowdsourcing. For those of you who stuck around, by the way, we are going to have a summary of all of this in the Medium post that accompanies the show. We will link to it in the show notes, but it's also what grinds my gears um, on Medium. You can find it there. And I think we will include a lot of the articles and writing and analysis we've talked about because we know there's a lot to digest. And that's all we've got for you this week. Don't forget, money makes the world go around. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. Meltman Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning, and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.